from New Orleans. This is Mindset. Psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic interviews the leading lights of America's most fascinating city. If you live in New Orleans, you know Morris Bart. Even if you haven't met him, you're probably familiar with... Hurt in a car wreck? Get 24-hour service at GetBart.com. Morris Bart fought hard and got me $290,000. Call 525-8000 or click GetBart.com. One call or one click, that's all. Morris Bart has been practicing law since 1978. And in that time, he has become one of the preeminent personal injury lawyers in New Orleans. He is also a pioneer in the field of legal advertising being one of the first attorneys in the country to advertise on television. Today, I'm sitting down with Mr. Bart to find out where this drive for innovation comes from. Uh, I grew up uh, in uptown New Orleans Mm -hmm. in a pretty average middle-class family. Uh, My father was a real estate developer, uh, uh, built homes uh, on the West Bank of New Orleans, a lot in Terrytown, Mm -hmm. and had duplexes. And... He did okay for himself. He, he didn't do fabulous. He wasn't one of the top real estate developers in New Orleans. Uh, and uh, my mother uh, is European, and she was a model. We're Jewish. My, my father was Jewish. And my father was a pilot uh, during World War II, stationed in Europe. He was in the 82nd Airborne. His service in the military as a pilot during World War II yeah. is, without question, the most important event of his life. Um, up until his death, he always referred to himself as a soldier, which I don't think is that uncommon for what we now call the greatest generation. Hmm. You know, those men that truly went to war and, yeah. and saved the world. Yeah. I don't think there's, there's been a generation since that. Hmm. So, so that was very important to him. So I grew up, you know, hearing about how my father fought the Nazis yeah. and from my mother hearing about, you know, how all of her family was killed. Growing up in America was, was very easy, very comfortable. I've, uh, I've had a, a happy life growing up in New Orleans. It, it, it really hasn't been an issue, but it did instill in me you know, a, a very strong sense of pride of mm-hmm. who I am and what I am, mm-hmm. and that I'm very proud of my Jewish heritage and of the Jewish people and of the Jewish religion yep. and of Israel. And uh, as a result, to this day, I'm very philanthropically involved. Yep. Uh, I give a lot of money to uh, Jewish causes and to the state of Israel, mm-hmm. but that's not exclusive. I also give a lot of money to, uh, you know, to schools in New Orleans. Uh, I mean, all the schools, whether they're inner city schools that yeah. I have a, a very big program with the Bart's Bees that I do with the Pelicans, yep. Yep. or Newman Country Day, McGee, Loyola, UNO. Uh, you know, I believe that education is an important key to the success of New Orleans. So as a result, I've I've targeted a lot of my philanthropy towards education. So from your childhood then, um, having parents that were involved in the war and relatives that were murdered, Mm -hmm. do you think that instilled in you a sense that you needed to do something here? Because you were almost like first generation in a way as a because your mother was from Europe, you know? My mother's Swiss, but my father He's was born and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee. Right. Yes. But was there a sense that because they both survived the war that you had to do something more? Or, or um, it, it's possible. I mean, I, like I said, I did have a, a strong sense of pride. Yeah. Uh, and, and I had perhaps a sense that 
I need to now go out and prove myself because of what happened to my ancestors. I, I mean, that, that could be a part of it. It's just that that's just kind of who I am. It's not like I ever thought, aha, I want to go out and be successful because of what happened to my, yeah. my ancestors. But uh, it is a recognition that I've always had. How do you view the world when you wake up in the morning? Well, it depends on what day it is. Okay. Uh, I'm very rigid about my exercise. Okay. I think it's important uh, for anybody in life to, to exercise, but particularly when you have a high-pressured, stressful-type job, mm-hmm. I think exercise to have a mental and physical release, not, not only to mention that the health benefits that flow from it, that's, that's essential. When I wake up, my mind is focused on getting to Audubon Park mm-hmm. early in the morning, getting my run in, which gets, as you know, probably as well as anybody, the endorphins and oh, yeah. everything else going. And then by the time I finish my run, I'm really charged up and, and really ready to go ahead and got a very good positive mindset. And mm-hmm. uh, I just go and get the day done. So after you're done exercising and thinking about work, I mean, you, you must have an enormous amount of potential stress on you at any one given work day, correct? Well, you know, what I've come to realize is that stress is self-induced and, uh, you know, in my early years as a lawyer, mm-hmm. I found it much more stressful than I do now. Even okay. though I now I deal with vastly more complicated, difficult, yeah. and, and and potentially troublesome situations. Yeah. But I don't feel the stress. Uh, it's just for many years of doing this and getting comfortable with it and enjoying what I do yeah. that uh, I, I really don't feel much stress at all with what I do. I like the action. Mm-hmm. I like the excitement. Uh, stress was more when I was a younger lawyer, mm-hmm. and it'd be like, oh, my God, what do I do? How do I handle this? What do I do? Mm-hmm. Once you get some control over you know, how things work and how you're going to do it, then the, the stress seems to dissipate. What? Did did you begin exercising when you were a younger lawyer, when you were more stressed out? I began exercising in my early 30s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really was an offshoot. Uh, you know, I graduated law school. Uh, I was around 26 years old, started working, jumped into it. I was young. I was ambitious. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to do well. I wanted to... Uh, make a name for myself, become a good lawyer. Mm-hmm. And so I was just working all the time. And even though I was still young, I found that I was starting to lose a little energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, as most of us, when we were in school, yeah. we, we keep active, we're up and around, we're doing things. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I was sitting down in an office environment all day. Or if yeah. I was in court, I was sitting in the courtroom all day. Yeah. And uh, it's challenging mentally, but it doesn't do too much for you physically. And I had several friends of mine that were very active into working out and fitness. And so uh, it was a natural kind of uh, transition for me to realize that if I'm not getting the activity during the day, Mm -hmm. then I need to do something else. I've never been much of a drinker. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess in the past, men would, you know, go for the happy hour. I used to be a bartender. Really? uh, So I'm very familiar with how men at uh, 5 o'clock like to go and and have a martini to kind of unwind. And so I decided that's what I need to do. I need to unwind. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to drink a martini because I'm not a drinker. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit the gym. And, And it was just... That thought of uh, that thought process that in my late 20s, I said, aha, I need to start advertising. I'm not advertising. I need to do that. I need to start exercising. And I've done it nonstop since I've been in my 20s. And what bar did you work at? 
Well, it's uh, for New Orleanians who have been around a while. They might remember sure. Ichabods. Uh, great job to have when you're in college. Uh, I don't know if I'd recommend it when you, when you get out of college, but when you're young and single and carefree and you're yeah. a college student, I don't know that there can be a better job. What were you like when you were young and single and carefree other than Well, I think things? Um, like most uh, college students at that time, uh, you don't have a whole lot of responsibility and... Uh, you know, it's uh, probably meeting girls was my number one priority. <laughs> and then after that would be my schoolwork, getting good grades, because I, I did have a vision of becoming a professional and becoming a lawyer. And, mm-hmm. and so I didn't want uh, my quest for meeting girls to interfere with my making good grades. And you pretty much balance that. I would say that was kind of the extent of my life did, back then. Did you date a lot? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah I would You're... say that... Uh, I, uh, I think it was just a pretty typical college student experience. You know, meet girls, go out. Sometimes you have a girlfriend, sometimes you don't. Yeah. Just a pretty typical college student experience. Do you have any advice about love for people listening to the show? Well, that's a pretty deep question you're just <laughs> jumping into. Um, you know, love requires a lot of things. It requires uh, uh, similarities. It requires commitment. It requires dispositions that match each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some people say like attracts. Uh, some people say opposites attract. Uh, but you have to find someone that I think you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think perhaps, you know, similar values and upbringing mm-hmm. uh, is, is very important because, you know, it's having a long-term relationship. You know, I've been married now. Uh, for, let's see, we got married in 82. So 31 going on 32 years. Okay. Have a great marriage. And uh, it just requires a, uh, you know, a commitment and, and being with someone that you enjoy being with. So when you were a little kid, do you think that you were pretty, were you type A or were you, <laughs> did you do well uh, in school? Did, I was probably type B. I mean, I was just a... <laughs> A fun-loving, easygoing type of guy, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it was reflected in the jobs I had. You know, I uh, I sold clothes. I used to, to love to sell clothes. Worked in several men's stores in New Orleans, and uh, then, like I said, I, I got into the restaurant business, which I loved. And I mm-hmm. was a waiter. I was a bartender, and then I became a manager of the restaurants, and I loved doing that. Yeah. The change occurred when I got into law school. Now. I think it was partly because I got into law school and partly because I was just maturing, you yeah. know, as many yeah. of us do. You know, we're oh, yeah. teenagers, and then <laughs> we hit the 20s, and then we start to grow up. Uh, you know, my father used to say that, uh, uh, what was that saying? He had something about uh, you, don't, you don't have sense until you're 30 years old, you know, <laughs> something like that. And, uh, and so I think that just came about, and I was very proud of the fact that I got into law school. From the very first day I heard I got into law school, I was very proud of that, and I did well in law school. I graduated yeah. at the top of my class. I was in the Honor Society. You know, I got awards for getting the highest grades in, in some of my classes. Hmm. And so uh, law seemed to come easy to me, where in college I had to work harder. I had to struggle to get yeah. good grades, but I was willing to do that struggle to achieve my goal. In law school, it was a good fit. It just, it just came easy to me, and, uh, and I think that that evolution of, of then going through law school 
you know, stayed with me all, up until today. Even after many years, I'm still very excited and passionate about being a lawyer. It seems like um, you worked, you had several jobs where you did a lot of hard work. I know waiting tables and um, yeah. working in a bar is can be grueling at times. That's it's very fast, fast-paced. To, do you think that taught you, is where you got your work ethic, was the, those years of working, or did it come more from your childhood? I think it just came from my parents. It was just in my genes. I mean, I've mm-hmm. always had a good work ethic. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe it's a very important and integral part of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've had the... Uh, opportunity now to, uh, to, to go to exotic places. We have a home in Aspen, mm-hmm. and uh, I spent a lot of time in Aspen. And I meet guys who have been very successful, made a ton of money in life, decided to cash in their chips and go to Aspen. And they go there, they buy a beautiful house, sometimes with their new wife, their new trophy mm-hmm. wife, sometimes without the, the trophy wife. But they go there, and uh, I've seen two things. Number one, I've seen guys that go there, and after six months or, or a year are bored to death mm-hmm. and leave and go back home. And I've seen other guys that thrive there. But when I talk to them, I just uh, I don't care for it. It's just it's not a lifestyle that appeals to me. They play golf. They ski. Yeah. And while those leisure pursuits are wonderful, it's not anything I care to do on a full-time basis. I mean, I get... I get juiced by working. I, I like the action of working, and it's something I've come to realize about myself. Yeah. And, and I just think it's important. If you have a skill, if you've been trained, you're a doctor. Mm-hmm. I'm a lawyer. I just think as long as we are healthy and physically able to serve people and to, to help people because somebody's invested in us, somebody's given us this extraordinary yeah education and opportunity, that if we decide simply because we've made enough money not to work and not to help people, then shame on us, yeah. that we shouldn't do that. that. I think that's a waste at any age. Yeah. You know, and, and I hope my father worked well until he was in his 80s. Wow. You know, there's nothing I'd like more than on my 80th birthday to cut an ad, a new one call <laughs> that's all ad, and still be on television selling and, and running my law firm. Where does the one call that's all, where did that come from? Uh, well, that was a creation. I did that, uh, and you, you now see it all over the country, and it's because friends of mine around the country have asked if they can copy it. I say, sure. I really don't care. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter So it's me. not licensed out or anything like no, that? I, no. I probably should have trademarked it, but I didn't. Uh, but basically, it came about, uh, it's an interesting story, what happened. This was in the 80s, okay. and uh, at that time, a new thing was coming on television called infomercials. And you had the proliferation of infomercials. The 30-minute the format commercial is, is basically what it is. Well, I'd never seen them before, and I was fascinated by it, being a real student of marketing. I've always loved marketing. Mm-hmm. So being a real student of that, I used to stay up late at night and watch these infomercials. And one of them that fascinated me was the Grapefruit 45 diet. And the theory behind this was that these scientists had taken the substance out of the grapefruit, which I guess is pectin, which is in grapefruit. But they had taken this magic substance out of the grapefruit, put it into pill form. Mm -hmm. And if you took that all night, it took that at night, while you slept, it dissolved all your fat into liquid form. And when you got up in the morning, you simply urinated your fat away. And after, uh, you know, a couple of weeks or so, you would have lost pounds and pounds. And, of course, it wasn't regulated that strictly back then by yeah. the Federal Trade Commission. 
So they'd have these fake testimonials of people coming on saying, yeah, I ate steaks and eggs and ham and everything I want, and I lost 30 pounds in one month on the Grapefruit 45 diet. So it fascinated me. So I got together with my agent at the time. It was just the two of us. And I said, listen, I understand this now. What America wants, they want things that are fast and easy. Nobody wants to hear that to lose weight. You have to exercise and work hard and eat right. Yeah. They want it easy. They want to just take a pill and you lose weight. So how can we do that with law? You know, how can we do it? So we started brainstorming. Okay, so what do people do? How do they get a lawyer? Well, they call a lawyer up. Okay, well, when they call a lawyer, what does the lawyer then do? Well, the lawyer does a lot, but, you know, it's the initial call. So we start thinking, okay, well, maybe one call does it all or one call that's all you need because we want to make it simple. You know, it's mm -hmm. simple for everybody. And then out of that meeting came one call, that's all. That, you know, it, it's easy. Mm -hmm. It's a swallowing kind of the silly grapefruit 45 diet, but <laughs> right the message was very powerful. It's one call, that's all. It's like I've got all these problems. One call, that's all. And now I've got a law firm. They're going to take care of everything. And that, that, that slogan has stuck now for many, many years. Now, was there an evolution to your development as a professional when you, you know, went from being... Uh, an early uh, career attorney sure. to then being this kind of business um, uh, manager because you manage your law firm yourself and you practice right. law, right? right? So tell me about like how that came about where you really became the Morris part that people know in, on TV and yeah. in that persona, I guess. Well, for probably the first 15 years I was a lawyer. I ran the law firm and I was the trial attorney. Okay. <clears throat> I handled all the trials in the firm, the jury trials, judge trials, Mm -hmm. Everything, all the litigation I did in the firm. And I was really pulled. I mean, I was working six, seven days a week. Yeah. And then I met with a business consultant. And he told me, he said, look, what you need to do is this. He said, the magic in any company is the person that can bring in business. Mm -hmm. That's the magic component of, of any business. Very mm -hmm. few people can do that. He said, in your business, you can hire lawyers to handle the cases that can do as good or maybe even do better than you can. Mm -hmm. But you can never hire a lawyer that can make the phone ring and bring in business. Yeah. So I followed that advice, and, and I hired a lawyer way back then who's still with me today. He's my most senior attorney. And I remember I said, listen, here's a group of cases I have that I'm working on. You take this group, and that frees me up to now create ads, do yeah. ads, concentrate on the marketing, and I did it, and sure enough, I mean, as I concentrate on marketing, and I was fortunate that I had just a very good knack, a very good sense yeah. for marketing, which I got from my father, but I started doing that, and the practice started growing and growing, and I hired more lawyers, and as it got bigger and bigger, I shifted much more to management than I did to actually doing cases, but I've never gotten completely out of that. I mean, to this day, yeah. I spent a lot of my time just being a lawyer, meeting with other lawyers in the firm, plotting strategy on the cases. Yeah. We have a mass tort section in our law firm where we handle like, you know, medical products, pharmaceutical drug cases, BP yep. oil spill cases, yep. and yep. I head up that section. So I'm intimately involved with, you know, all of the, the, the case dealings that we have in mass tort. So what do you, th what do you think made you different than other lawyers to, to actually take the step to Open your own law firm, yeah. then to take these steps to do more marketing to, and kind of take the risk yeah. of doing that. Well, the risk is the operative word. You know, the bigger the risk, the bigger the return. Yeah. 
I was willing to push all my chips onto the table and be all in. When I first started doing it, you know, I was one of the first ones in the United States, and I was the first one in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew if it would work. I mean, now everybody knows if it, wor- it, it works, so it's a no-brainer. It's just a matter of whether you can do it and be successful. Right. But when I did it, nobody knew if the phone would ring. We really didn't know. And I remember one time a lawyer in New Orleans, you know, some of these comments you never forget. This was a lawyer that I yeah. really respected. He was a very successful lawyer. And, you know, I told him, I'm a young lawyer. I was maybe two years out of law school. I said, I'm thinking of advertising. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, that's fine. He goes, you just better hope it works because if it doesn't, you will never get a job in this city again. Mm-hmm. So I remember that to this day. But, you know, when you're young, you think you're bulletproof. So I kind of shrugged my shoulders. I said, fine, if I don't get a job here, I'll move to another city. You know, it's kind of no big deal to yeah. me. Uh, fortunately, what, it did work. But what did he explain what he meant by that comment? Well, he just meant that by advertising, which was back then in mm-hmm. such disfavor with the legal profession, mm-hmm. that he basically meant if you advertise, your name's going to be mud, regardless of how good a lawyer you are. Just the mere fact that you did it. It's so controversial, your name's going to be mud, and no lawyer in town will want to hire you. So even with that advice, you said, I'm going to do it anyways. Right. That's pretty, uh, pretty bold. Well, you, you know, you got to take chances. I mean, you know, you got to, you know, you got to stick your head out of the foxhole sometimes. Were you nervous? You know, we're in a hyper-competitive profession. Mm-hmm. There's 21,000 lawyers in Louisiana. There's 6,000 lawyers just in New Orleans. So yeah. it's unbelievable. I mean, as a psychiatrist, what are there, 40, 50 psychiatrists yeah, in New Orleans? Yeah, not that many, right. How would you like it if there were 6,000 psychiatrists in New Orleans? Think about trying to get a, a patient in that scenario. May have to uh, come up with a slogan. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so anyway, but that's the environment it was back then, and that's the environment it is now. Yeah. I was willing to go to court. I wanted to try cases. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be a good lawyer, make a name for myself. It was hard to get the business. So for me, it was a natural to go on television and advertise, even though I was assuming tremendous risk. Mm-hmm. People regularly told me, you're going to fall on your face. You're not going to make it. It won't work. People won't call you. On and on and on. I, I had a thousand reasons why it wouldn't work. I decided I wanted to do it anyway. I thought it's going to work. It's not illegal. It's not unethical. Right. You know why can't I do it? What do you think your greatest failure has been along the way? Um, I wouldn't call it a failure, but what I would call it is an ongoing battle. And that is my war against mediocrity. Uh, you know, when you have people working for you, particularly now we have a big firm, a lot of lawyers there. Yeah. Uh, but I see it in every business I go into, restaurants, everywhere. There just seems to be this, this mediocrity of, of work, and people tolerate it more than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the few people that excel, and we love them. Mm-hmm. Doctors, lawyers, yeah. professional even the person that sells us our clothes. You then have the, the people that do a terrible job, and if you're in a position to fire them, then it's a no-brainer, you fire them. Mm-hmm. In the middle, which comprises a lot of the workforce, you have just mediocre people. They're just showing up for work. They're, mm-hmm. they're not bad. They're not good. They're just kind of average yeah. uh, journeyman type showing up for work. And in my firm, 
I still have a, a passion for what I do. I still have a zest for what I do. Mm-hmm. So I want to surround myself with like-minded people. And so throughout my professional career, I've had this war on mediocrity where I try to get people to improve, to get the best out of themselves. Yeah. Uh, some I can, some I can't. And as one lawyer told me, he said, this is going to be your personal Vietnam because, you know, you plunge into that, you can't get it done. It's the same when I go to a restaurant. Having worked in a restaurant for many years, I have a certain pride. I had a pride about what I do, and when I go, I expect that. I mean, mm-hmm. working in a restaurant should be the easiest job in the world. You have people coming there in a good mood mm-hmm. that want to enjoy themselves. All you have to do is assist them in enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. So to have someone come in in a good mood and turn them into a bad mood because of lousy service, right. that really takes something. Right. So I, I tip big, but conversely, if I get bad service, I don't mind tipping very little, if any at all. Mm-hmm. I don't really recommend that. What I recommend, the best approach, having worked in a restaurant, and which I regularly do, is you ask for the manager. You know, if you go yeah. into a store, if you go into a restaurant, you're getting bad service, don't feel that you're constrained to only deal with that waiter. Get up off your butt. Mm-hmm. You know, go to the, the hostess or whoever and say, I'd like to speak to the manager. Mm-hmm. And you just tell the manager, listen, I'm here with my family. We came here to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Maybe the waiter has too many tables. Maybe they're having a bad night. I don't know what's going on, but we're yeah. trying to have a good time, and we're not because this is going wrong. Nine times out of ten, that manager will then make sure you have a good time and mm-hmm. will make sure you get good service. That's the correct way to handle it. Well, don't they know you're Morris Bart anyways? Yeah, so, <laughs> so when I get bad service, it's like it's intentional. But, <laughs> but that's one of the benefits of being on television. Parking lots and restaurants, I get taken very good care of now. There's a lot of conflict in the legal profession, right, because you're, mm-hmm. you're battling the other side. Right. Does that bother you at all? <clears throat> you know, it, it, it comes with the turf. Uh, yeah. You know, it almost reminds me of uh, something... President Bush said that, uh, and, and let me qualify that by saying, you know, I'm a strong Democrat. Okay. And always have been. Bush one or Bush two? Uh, Bush two. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody asked him, how do you deal with the stress every day of being president? And he says, you just get up each day and you just do it. And he said, if, if you don't uh, have a thick skin, then this isn't the right job for you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a lot of it. I mean, there's no magic, there's no mantra. You know, I don't meditate or do anything like that. Uh, you know, my one release is exercise, like I said. But yeah. pretty much you just get up and do it. And uh, if, if you enjoy what you do mm-hmm. and you want to do well at what you do and distinguish yourself and not just be a worker bee, but whatever you do, you want to do well at that. And if you're in a job where you don't want to do well, you need to quit and get a job where you do want to do well. And once you achieve that, where you're doing something you enjoy, then you just get up and do it. Well, do you think that some of the people that are mediocre at their work are just people that are dissatisfied but have what they call the golden handcuffs where it's a secure job, they're making enough money to to be happy, but they just can't leave it to do what they want to do? That is, yeah. I mean, it's a fact of life that we're in a capitalistic society. You have to make money to live. And the older you get, the more responsibilities you have. And, and then you do have those golden handcuffs, which <clears throat> is one of the reasons why I quit my job as a lawyer one year out of law school for that very reason. Hmm. We didn't have the term golden handcuffs back then. Uh, in my mind, I remember I used to think just to myself that 
if I stay at this job too, too long, I'm going to become an economic slave. That's what I used to think about. Yeah. And because I used to think at the time, look, I'm, I'm single. I have no responsibilities. I had an apartment that I, I paid very little rent on. Mm-hmm. So my expenses were minimal. It, that, that's a difficult question as far as what do you do now? Let's say you're, you're family, you're married, you got the golden handcuffs, you yeah. have a responsibility to your family. You can't be irresponsible. You can't just on a whim say, hey, I want to quit and sell motorcycles because I yeah. like motorcycles. Uh, that becomes a difficult issue. I mean, do you, uh, what do you do first? I would contend that if you have a family that you need to put the interest of others ahead of yourself, mm-hmm. which is probably not a popular concept nowadays. But uh, if yeah. you've assumed that responsibility and, and you brought kids into the world, then you need to support them. And uh, I think you're, you need to do the best of what you can, but your wants and wishes may be secondary to those of, of your family. What do you think then leads to mediocrity, in your opinion? Like, you know, the, you're saying this fight against mediocrity, just trying not to be average but to be above average or yeah. to do a really really good job what do you think leads to it i think the, the the main reason is that people haven't followed their instincts or haven't had the guts to do what they enjoy doing mm-hmm. uh they just kind of meander through life you know we yeah. i get out of uh, out of college uh i can't really get a job right now hey maybe i'll go to law school yeah you know i'm smart enough i got good grades so i go to law school it's fun, I'm meeting friends, I'm going out, I'm partying, and oops, three years have gone by and now I graduate. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them might not have even thought, do I want to be a lawyer? Yeah. Do I like being a lawyer? What's it about? Well, now I graduated, my parents say I have to get a job, so let me go out there and, okay, now I have a job. I'm mm-hmm. working for a law firm. And we're just kind of meandering around. Yeah. We never really thought, what is it that you're predisposed to do? Everybody has some sort of talents. Everybody has things they like to do, they want to do. Uh, your talents are different than my talents. Uh, some are geared towards mathematics and analytical fields. Yeah. Others, that, that's terrible. It's like that saying, one man's heaven is another man's hell. I don't know that people think that much when they have, they're young and have that opportunity. They think about what they want to do and have the guts to pursue something they might enjoy doing, where if they did something they enjoyed, chances are they'd be very successful because they're doing what they enjoy. Yeah. At the very least, they would be doing something they enjoy. So even if they weren't successful, they'd be enjoying. And so I think mediocrity comes about a lot because people are doing things that they just kind of meandered into and never really gave much thought about what they want to do. You knew what you wanted to do pretty early on. Or yeah. at least when you got to law school, it was most, one of the most proud days that right. you can remember. I know some people who just don't know what they want to do, and part of the the theme of this show uh, is you know your mindset. Um, right. How do pe- how are people supposed to figure out what they should do or what to do or what they even love? Well, first of all, and again, I'll quote my father here. Again, it's funny, mm-hmm. you know. I guess I'm talking about him, so it comes up. He used to always say, and I believe this is true: learn at someone else's expense. And that's what you do. First, you have to learn. Let's say, you know, a guy, and guys tell me this all the time, oh, I love sports. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what have you done with sports other than play some weekend football or, or go see the Saints or the Pelicans? Mm-hmm. I mean, let's see you do something. You say you love sports and you want to do something in the sports field. 
Well, then you've got to do something. You know, they have the Greater New Orleans yeah. Sports Foundation. Why don't you call them up and say, I want to volunteer? It's just one example. I mean, there's a million things you could so you're do. So you're saying you need to be proactive. I think and, you need to be proactive. Yeah. If you say, I like music, you know, it's, it's hip, you know, I love the music industry. Okay, well, do you do more than go to a bar and listen to the bands? Mm-hmm. You know, if you love music, if you say you want to work in that industry, then let's see you do something. I mean, go yeah. to a band, go to a bar. Hey, I'd like to work for free and help you book bands. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see if maybe I can help this band set up. You got to get your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. You got to learn at somebody else's expense. You got to see first if it's something you really like. A um, a negative comment or compliment mm-hmm. I might get as well. You know, you were lucky. You were at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I always used to think, you know, it's more than that. Yeah, I was one of the first ones to advertise, but it wasn't just a lucky break. You know, I like to think there was more to me than just I was standing at the right place in the right time. But that used to be the offhanded compliment I get is, boy, were you lucky. You just jumped on that, that train at the right time. Mm-hmm. And I think what I learned about myself is, you know what, there was a lot more to it, that I had the right instincts, the right work ethic, the right legal knowledge, the, the, the right motivations to become the success I did. My guest and mindset today has been New Orleans attorney Morris Bart. You can listen to past episodes of Mindset on the New Orleans Podcast Network, itsneworleans.com, where you will also find Out to Lunch with Peter Raschuti live at Commander's Palace, Happy Hour with Grant Morris, True to the Game with Chris True, Vietnola, the show about New Orleans Vietnamese community with Kim Vu, and Midnight Menu Plus One with Margot Moss and the man who ate New Orleans, Ray Kanata. You can keep up with Mindset on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. All the links are on the website, itsneworleans.com. If you're listening to this on iTunes or another podcast app, thanks for subscribing. Take a moment to rate and review us. That helps other people find us. The technical producers of Mindset are Eric Murrell and Chris Kehoe. Mindset is a production of INO Broadcasting. I'm Dr. Nick Pajik. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Mindset. You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.